0: Well, around the year of 423 A.D., so a long time ago, not just last week, but 423 A.D., uh, a Christian monk named Simeon, he decided that he had had enough. Now, this Simeon, he was born in Syria. He was the son of a shepherd. But by age 13, it was clear that he had an extraordinary zeal for the Christian faith. And so by age 16, that zeal led him to life in a monastery. However, over time, uh, monastic life proved too indulgent, uh, too full of slack and temptation for Simeon. He, he felt that life in a monastery was not severe enough for his pursuit of real holiness. Also, as Simeon grew in his passion for holiness, he found that other people just kept getting in the way. People would come to him with asking for advice about godly living, help with difficult situations, requests. For prayer, but Simeon struggled with all these people coming to him. They were becoming a hindrance in his eyes, a distraction in his pursuit of Christian living and real self denying holiness. So Simeon did something drastic. One day, as he was wandering the ruins of an ancient city in the Syrian wilderness, again, he was out there trying to get away from people, but as he was out there, he found a pillar out in the midst of these ruins with a small platform on top of it. And in that moment, Simeon made a decision. And that decision is why people are still talking about him today. You see, Simeon was the first of what is called the stylites. Now, stylite, S-T-Y-L-I-T-E, is simply the Greek word for pillar. But these stylites were a group of monastic ascetics who actually chose to live life away from people up on pillars. Real thing. <laughs> and Simeon was the first. When he came across that pillar in the Syrian wilderness, he climbed up to the top of it and he decided that the best way to pursue a spiritual life was up away from the ground and away from other people. So he climbed up on that pillar and he, he lived up on that pillar. He slept upon that pillar, he ate upon that pillar, he did everything from up on that. Pillar, but here's the thing: people still came to him. People still came to him. They came out in the wilderness to see this monk on this pillar and, and seek out his wisdom, seek out his spiritual understanding. He actually became kind of like a spiritual sideshow out there in the wilderness. This this monk up on his styline. But all that unwanted attention caused Simeon to take things further. His original pillar was some six to nine feet off of the ground, depending on what historian you read. But that was proving uh, not to be high enough for Simeon. So Simeon kept seeking higher and higher pillars, higher and higher stylites. And eventually he found a pillar that was 50 feet off of the ground. And it was upon that pillar that he lived the rest of his days, like 30 years, up on that pillar. A man trying to pursue godliness, trying to pursue spirituality, away from the ground, away from the world, away from other people. He was a man trying to live a a spiritual life. But an important question for us as we get started this morning is this. Is that what this man, who historians call Simeon the Stylite, is that what he actually achieved? By living up on that pillar away from the world, did he actually live a spiritual life? Is that actually what a spiritual life really looks like? Are we to understand that spiritual life is one lived away from distractions, away from temptations, and also away from other people? Let me ask the question this way. Is living a spiritual life just about us and our own private devotion to God? Is living a spiritual life just about us, just about me, and my own private devotion to God? Is it just about me and God? Well, although in the modern Western church, we don't find many, if any, who practice the severe monasticism of Simeon the Stylite, I do think that we find many who embrace his philosophy. Let me explain what I mean. What I mean by that is that I do think we have many modern Christians who believe that living the Christian life is simply about their own individualistic, private, personal relationship with God. They, they would answer our question. Is living the spiritual life just about me and my private devotion to God? They would answer that question with an affirmative. Yes, that's what it's about. They view Christianity primarily as just about me and God. It's just about me and God. Now, here's the thing. I don't know if most would say it explicitly that way. But they do expose their thinking when, they aim, when we aim at spirituality through isolation. I mean, just like, just like Simeon, some Christians can be tempted to believe that if I could just get away from things, I would do so much better. I'm tempted to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever, ever thought, if I could just get away. However, the problem with that is, is such a thinking reveals that deep down we believe that other people, right, are really the problem. Other people are really the problem. We view other people as the reason for our continued struggles with anger. If that wasn't for that person, I never wouldn't get angry. We view other people as the reason for our continued struggles with lust or with pride or with lack of self-discipline. That's the we reason. If those other people just keep their distance, then I could truly live a spiritual life. And then often we find ways to keep other people at a distance, right? We find ways. One of the ways that I think I see growing in our culture is the idea that no church is good enough. No church is good enough. There are some Christians who, who, who can't seem to find a church that they view as truly good enough, truly faithful enough. So that what they do is they end up worshiping all by themselves. I was talking to a brother just a couple of weeks ago, or a couple months ago, that I met. And he was, I said, where do you go to church? Well, I don't. There's no church that's good enough. He just worships by himself. So, so they, just stay, they just stay home on Sundays. Or maybe you talk to people like this, they, they say, Well, are you going to church? You no, know, oh, I'm, I'm going to go off hiking in the mountains. That's where I can just be with me and God and really, really worship. But what's behind that thinking is the same thing that drove Simeon the Stylite out into the wilderness. They believe that a truly spiritual life is one that's pursued in isolation. It's just me and God. But when you think deeper about Simeon's story you find that there's something more in it than just this desire for spirituality through isolation and that's something more that you find I think is kind of ugly you see Simeon shows us a man who who deep down was aiming at spirituality through individualism spirituality through individualism his Christian life was all about him it was all about him and what I mean by that is that his obvious approach to, to the Christian community around him was focused on what they could do or actually what they couldn't do for him. That wasn't what can I do for them. It was what can they do or not do for me. And I think of that approach, the approach that says my, my embrace or my lack of embrace of Christian community is all about what they can do for me. I think that approach is becoming all too common in our day and age. Is becoming all too, I would say that it's actually becoming dangerously common in our day and age. And I would use that word dangerously because honestly, it's such a destructive approach. When the Christian community, when the church simply becomes about serving me, the individual in the church, if everybody takes that approach, how long is the community going to last? How long is that church going to survive? When everyone is primarily focused upon themselves, true community shrivels up and dies. Shrivels up and dies. And I often wonder, brothers and sisters, if that will be the epitaph over the American church. If the American church continues on in its decline, which we are, look at the statistics, we are in a decline here in America. I wonder if future generations will look back upon us and they will write upon our tombstone they died because they thought it was all about them they died because they thought it was all about them I wonder if our epitaph will read they died from individualistic consumerism they wanted all the best programs they wanted all the biggest buildings they wanted the most posh church coffee shops but nobody really wanted to serve nobody really wanted to disciple other people Nobody really wanted to admonish and deal with sin. And nobody really wanted to confront a needy world with the demands of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now, they're dead. I do often wonder what our future will hold if we continue to view the Christian life as simply all about me. And, and I say that, I say that knowing that Jesus has promised to keep his church, praise God, amen? Amen. This promise to keep his church. But I said also knowing that this, this me-centered individual's thinking is not biblical thinking, it's not God honoring thinking. So either it will continue to lead to a serious decline in the church in the West, or it will result in Christ's serious discipline of us in the West. And he will discipline us in order to help us understand that a truly spiritual life includes life lived in Christian community. Truly spiritual life includes life lived in Christian community. The Christian life is about more than just the individual. And we should know this, brothers and sisters. Amen. We should know this. Good old Simeon the Stylite should have known this. And I say we should know this because all we got to do is read the Bible, right? We just have to read God's word. I mean, just think with me. What do we see with God's people in the Old Testament? Are they just a bunch of isolated individuals? Did God give them laws about, okay, here's how far apart and how high your stylites need to be? Your pillars. And everybody just go find one and get on top of it. Is that what he gets in the Old Testament? No, not at all. Instead, he calls them to community. First through a family. And then as a nation. And he teaches them how to live as that community. Because they they needed to learn. They weren't very good at it. You read the Old Testament. So he taught them. He taught them how to live as a holy community. And we see the same thing as we continue on to the New Testament. Just, just think with me for a moment about the life of Jesus. Just think about the life of Jesus. Was Jesus a loner? Was he a loner? Did he approach spiritual life like it was just about him and the Father? Did you always see him yelling at his disciples, yelling at the crowds, get away from me, just leave me alone. You're a distraction as I pursue living the life that the Father has given me. Is that what you see? Of course not. Of course not. I mean, isn't it obvious? The life that the Father had called Jesus to live was all about a life lived in community with others. The life of Christ was all about serving others, teaching others, healing others, helping others, confronting others, and ultimately what? Dying for others. So here's the thing. We actually see the spirituality of Jesus' life through his relationships with others. We see the spirituality of Jesus' life through his relationships with others. And, And that's the same life that we are all called to as followers of Jesus Christ. It's the same life. I mean, isn't that the life that we see in the early church? As we read about the first Christians we see we see the reality of their spiritual life manifest through their relationships with one another. They, they show us their true spirituality through their relationships. Think about it. They sacrifice for one another. They, they share with one another. They, they comfort one another. And they strive side by side for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, you've read the book of Acts. The book of Acts isn't uh, a story about a bunch of isolated individuals. Instead, it is the record of a spiritual community called the church. The church. Here's a question. Do we understand what they understood? Are, are we approaching the Christian life like they approached the Christian life? Well, ask the question this simply, are we living like Christ? Are we living like Christ. Or are we more like Simeon the Stylite? Are we pursuing spirituality through, through isolation and individualism? It's just about all about us. It's just about me. How are you approaching the Christian life? Well, this morning we're going to begin working through a text that will challenge us on this very thing. It's actually going to show us a picture of true spirituality. A picture that looks very different than good old Simeon's approach. And maybe a little different than the approach with which you are are comfortable and familiar. So now go ahead and take your Bibles and turn over with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And as you're turning there, let me just say that when we read our Bibles, um, we can be tempted at times to misread our Bibles. And what I mean by that is that we can be tempted to read our Bibles as though Our Bible was primarily written to the first person singular, me. We can read the Bible as though it's it's just God's word to me as an individual. But in reality, God's word is actually written primarily to the first person plural. It's written to us. It's written to the community. The majority of God's word, as you read through it, the majority of God's word is addressed to the people, plural, of God, not the person, singular, of God. And it it's how we, as the people of God, are, are to live in relationship with God and in relationship with, with one another. And even the f- few personal letters that we do find in the Bible, like, like Philemon, like the pastoral epistles, even though they are written to individuals, they deal with matters of community. They deal with matters of community. Now, as I say that, Obviously, the word of God also stresses the place of personal responsibility and personal accountability. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying this morning. We as individuals are responsible for our sins. It's not just a group thing. It's an individual thing. And we as as individuals are responsible to repent and believe the gospel. It's not a group thing. It's an individual thing. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. My point is simply that if we read the pages in the Bible as though they're simply written to isolated individuals... Not to a community, not to us. No, are no, reading them wrong. Reading them wrong. And I bring all that up because the book of Galatians is, is no different. It wasn't written to someone named Galatia. It was written to a group of churches ministering and living together in the ancient region of Galatia. And Paul is showing them in this letter how they are to live together in relationship with one another. And here in chapter 5, he's showing them how they are to do that by the Spirit. Look at the text, starting in verse 16. Paul tells them, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And and several weeks ago, we worked through Paul's explanation of what that means. We walked through verses 16 to 25, exploring that reality of living a spiritual life. And as we study those verses in detail... Maybe maybe you heard all the stuff that we talked about and you thought about how you as an individual need to pursue walking by the Spirit. And maybe you thought about, as we went through that, you thought about your own battles with the flesh. Maybe you thought about your desire to, to have the Spirit's fruit manifest in your life. And maybe you were convicted about how you need to be more actively keeping in step with the Spirit. Maybe you thought about all those things on, on an individual personal level as we worked through it. And if you did all that, I want to just say, that's right and good. That's, that's right and good. Again, don't misunderstand me. Thinking about your own personal responsibility to do these things is right, and it's good. But here's the thing. If we just leave it at that, at how I, as an individual, need to get better at living my Christian life by the power of the Holy Spirit, if we just leave it at that, we're going to miss something crucial, something essential, something fundamental about the Christian life. And that's what Paul goes on to show us here is chapter 5 moves into chapter six. In the flow of Paul's discussion about walking by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, Paul goes on to explain how a spiritual life actually manifests itself in a spiritual community. So a spiritual life actually manifests itself in a spiritual community. A spiritual life actually leads to a spiritual community. It actually leads the opposite direction of Simeon the Stylite, okay? A spiritual life leads to a spiritual community. Again, that's what Paul's going to show us here as we move from chapter five into chapter six. But I want you to note that as he begins to show us this, he begins not with a positive description of the Christian community, he begins instead with a warning. And his warning here is kind of kind of tacked on to his previous discussion. Look at the text there. After saying in verse 25 of chapter 5, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And notice Paul's using the plural pronoun we and us to describe us pursuing living by the Spirit together. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. But then Paul adds this warning. Look at it. Verse 26. Let us not become What? Conceit, okay, I I got three of you still with me this morning. Yeah, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And here Paul is giving a very, very necessary warning to any community of Christians who desire to live life by the Spirit. And we all should desire to live life by the Spirit, amen? He's giving a very necessary warning, though, as we pursue that. See, here's the thing. As we pursue Living by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, and doing all that in relationship with other people, in relationship with the Christian community. As we pursue living a spiritual life, we have to be very careful as we do that as a community that certain unspiritual attitudes don't start to creep in. And here's the thing. If you've been part of any Christian church, and especially one who is passionate about holiness, you've probably already witnessed the the temptations towards these attitudes that Paul describes here. Beloved, the flesh can be so sneaky, so devious, so wicked. It it, it takes even the good things that we aim at, walking by the Spirit together, and it can spin them towards ugliness and towards sin. And and this, this actually happens as people find some success in walking by the Spirit. Let me explain what I mean. Let's say, let's say, for argument's sake, let's say that you come out of a fleshly lifestyle characterized by some of the things that Paul mentioned back in chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Remember his, his list there of the works of the flesh. So let's say you've come out of a lifestyle that was characterized by some of those things. Let's say at one time your life was characterized by, by sexual immorality, by <laughs> jealousy, and drunkenness. So just pick three off the list. So let's say at one time that was, that was what your life was characterized by, those things. Sexual immorality... Jealousy, drunkenness. But then by God's grace, Christ rescued you. You know, the gospel came to you. The spirit awakened you. You repented of your sins. You became a follower of Jesus Christ. And and as you began to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ, you found yourself experiencing some spiritual success. And, And what I mean by that is instead of being characterized by all those old works of the flesh, your life now began to be marked by the fruit of the spirit. You started to manifest kindness instead of jealousy. Faithfulness instead of sexual immorality. Self-control instead of drunkenness. In other words, as you, as you faithfully follow Jesus, the, the presence of the Spirit was manifested, showed up in your life in the fruit of the Spirit. So there's some spiritual success. But here's the thing. As often happens, success can bring a temptation to Success can bring a temptation to pride. And that's just as true in the spiritual realm as it is in the world of business, as it is in the world of athletics. Success can bring a temptation to pride. So let's imagine, as you began to experience that spiritual victory in your life, you then began to find yourself tempted towards a bit of arrogance. Instead of joyfully encouraging others, you started to look down upon others, wondering why they haven't yet got their act together. You found yourself... Being condemning towards others instead of compassion towards others. You heard yourself saying things like, well, I would never do that. Or I can't believe they said that. Or or the one person that you seem to praise the most is yourself. You feel this desire just to show everyone how spiritual you now are. And through your spiritual victory, you find pride rising up in your heart. And that's exactly that's exactly what Paul's warning against here. That's what he means by let us not become conceited. He's talking about the reality of spiritual pride. See this word that he uses here, conceited, it has the idea of being, being full of yourself. It describes someone who has an, an extremely exaggerated view of themselves. The old King James uses the phrase vain glory to translate that term and I I love that because that's really what it amounts to it's vain it's empty self-obsessed glory And, and it's foolishness it's a foolish pride because it's a foolish pride that breaks in what the spirit has done as though you and you alone were the one actually doing it it's a pride that's lost sight of grace lost sight of grace Here's the thing. As we experience success in walking by the Spirit in community with one another, there's a real temptation to become this way. We can become proud, conceited, and arrogant towards one another. And Paul shows us here that that pride can manifest itself in two key ways. First, it can manifest itself in a pride that provokes. That's the first phrase that Paul attaches here to this main command, let us not become conceited. And, and the provoking that Paul's talking about here is not a, not a positive, edifying, provoking, challenging. It's not like what Paul's done in this letter to the Galatians. As he, he strongly and lovingly challenged them to really embrace the, the freeing power of the gospel. That's not what he's talking about here. Instead, Paul is describing an arrogant spiritual competition with one another. It's similar to what we witnessed Paul addressing in his letters to the Corinthians. If you remember there in Corinth, they, they boasted... About their spiritual gifts. They, they boasted about their ministry accomplishments. They, they boasted about their theological associations and they, they flaunted those things in the face of others, others who they viewed as having lesser gifts, others that they viewed having lesser success in the Christian life, others who they viewed as having lesser theological tribes. So there was a, there was an arrogant spiritual competitiveness that had taken root in that church. So they were, they were sinfully provoking one another out of that spiritual arrogance. And honestly, we, we this, see the same foolishness taking place today. We see the same foolishness taking place today. Just hop on Twitter. Just hop on Twitter. Recently, I have been finding it, <laughs> uh, finding it harder and harder and harder to spend any time on that social media platform, primarily because of the way that my fellow Christians are behaving on that social media platform. What you witness there, and it just grieves me, what you witness there is that instead of talking with one another in ways that are profitable about issues which we might disagree about, Christian people and and Christian leaders resort to to trying to shout the other person down, erecting straw men using inflammatory terminology. I don't think they're trying to beatify. I think they're just trying to win more followers. And it's actually doing the very thing that Paul is warning against right here. And beloved, what we witness out there in the Twitterverse is also the same thing that is sadly experienced in many churches. Instead of being gracious with one another, people start taking shots at one another. Sometimes it's it's with a look. Sometimes it's with a snarky comment. Oftentimes it's behind someone's back, veiling our condemnation with phrases like, I'm so concerned about so-and-so. Or, you know, you should pray for so-and-so, let me tell you. But what we're really doing is provoking one another. We're competing against one another from a place of spiritual arrogance. I would never do that. There's also another way that this spiritual pride can turn. That's the second way that Paul mentions here. That's the way of envy. Instead of provoking one another, we become jealous of one another. And again, Paul warns against this, he's let us not become conceited, envying one another. So from this place of spiritual pride, again, from this place of spiritual pride, we can start to look at the circumstances, the, the, the abilities, the relationships of our fellow Christians, and actually believe that if we just had what they have, our, our, our life, our spiritual life would be so much better, it be so much easier if we just had what they have. We, we see someone doing well in their ministry, maybe they're a great children's church teacher or they have a wonderful ability at leading worship or they give great counsel to people and people just seem to flock to them and we and we see that and we start to grow jealous of that we envy that we say well if i just had the gifting that they had and so from that place of self-focused spiritual pride we don't praise god for the way that he's gifted another person Instead, we start to envy the way he's gifted another person. Or maybe what we envy is not so much their abilities, their gifting, but their circumstances, their relationships. Ever had one of those moments where you look around and you say, Well, if my spouse just treated me like that, or if my kids just behaved like that, or if my pastor just preached like that, I'd be doing so much better spiritually. Ever have one of those moments where you look around and you say, well, if I just had that situation, that relationship, my life would be so much easier. I'd be doing so much better spiritually. We can be tempted to see the situations of others, to look at their circumstances, to look at their relationships, and believe that if we just had what they had, then we too could be a spiritual success. So from our pride, from our conceit, we... We envy one another. So Paul warns us, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. As we walk by the Spirit, let's be careful how we relate to one another. Because if we aren't careful, our quote-unquote spiritual community won't be spiritual for very long. The flesh will hijack it. Our positive growth will turn sour. Our relationships with one another will become competitive, hostile, relationships, instead of being the gracious partnerships that should be true of a spiritual community. And those gracious partnerships are what Paul goes on to describe here in chapter 6. You see, after giving this warning that Christian community shouldn't look like a, a spiritual competition, Paul gives a positive picture of what they should look like. And what they should look like is a gracious partnership. That's, I mean, get that word stuck in your mind. A gracious, that phrase. A gracious partnership. That's what it should look like in a Christian community. A gracious partnership. And Paul shows us this here in the text in three ways. Look at the text. First in verse one, Paul gives some direction about how a Christian community should pursue holiness. He describes the, the loving correction for those who find themselves ensnared by sin. Look at what he writes, verse one. Brothers, or Brethren, so it includes the ladies as well. If anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. So here's the thing, brothers and sisters. As we pursue holiness together, it's not every man and woman for themselves. It's not every man and woman for themselves. There is a very real sense in which we are our brother's keeper. Very real sense in which we are a brother's keeper. Then Paul goes on here to show how Christian communities are also to, to carry the load together. He says in verse 2, look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then down in verse 6 he adds, let the one who is taught the word... Share all good things with the one who teaches. And both of those verses are actually aiming at the same fundamental idea. There is to be a beautiful, generous sharing among the people of God. We are to share our burdens, our struggles with one another. We are to share our understanding of spiritual truth with one another. And we are to share our resources for daily living with one another. We are not to be a community of Christian hoarders, okay? Instead, we should be characterized by a generous... Sharing. But as we share, Paul also stresses that within the Christian community, there is to be, and this is so important, a humble personal responsibility. A humble personal responsibility. You see, as we work, as we work together to restore those who are ensnared in sin, as we bear one another's burdens, as we, as we generously share with one another, we're never to get to that place, as individuals in this community, we're never to get to that place where we start to arrogantly expect or selfishly blame one another instead we are to be marked by humility that focuses on what we ourselves are actually bringing to the table you understand what i'm saying there what we ourselves are actually bringing to this table and and, and starting in verse three paul gives this clarification look at it starting in verse three he writes for if anyone thinks that he is something when he is what nothing paul always has a way of boosting our self-esteem doesn't he for if, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. In other words, each member of the Christian community needs to live as a contributing part of that community. We are not to leech off of the community or grow judgmental towards the community. Instead, we are all called To contribute, there is to be a humble personal responsibility that we all aim at. Now, all of this, all of this reveals the reality of our spiritual life. Again, a spiritual life actually manifests in a spiritual community. As Paul here talks about our spiritual lives, lives together, he he looks At how how we are to focus on embracing this gracious partnership, a partnership that manifests itself in gentle correction, manifests itself in in generous sharing, and manifests itself in a humble view of self. And here's the thing: we're going to unpack all of that. That was just the overview. In the next three weeks, remaining time this morning, I want to begin to dive into the first one of these: that a spiritual community should be a place of gentle correction spiritual community should be a place of gentle correction. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. As we pursue living a spiritual life together, it it should be marked by the way that that we pursue holiness together. As we pursue living a spiritual life, it should be marked by the way that we pursue holiness together. Again, look at the text. Paul writes verse 1. Brothers or brethren... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, <laughs> lest you too be tempted. Now, the reality is that as we pursue living a spiritual life, as we aim at the things that Paul's described at in this letter, specifically the aim, aim at the things that he talked about here in chapter 5, living life by the Spirit, as we aim at that, brothers and sisters, there's going to be struggles. Amen? Amen. There's going to be struggles. Remember, Paul's already explicitly made this point. Look back at at verse 17 of chapter 5. Remember what he told us there. Verse 17 of chapter 5. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. So there's this conflict going on in the heart of every Christian. Amen? There's this this conflict. So the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So there will be struggles. In the Christian life, (laughs) there will be days, I wish there wasn't, but there will be days when the flesh triumphs. We will find ourselves battling and struggling, and from time to time we will find ourselves losing those battles. Even even as we've been born of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, even even then, we will find ourselves from time to time ensnared by sin. And Paul here in verse 1, he describes it as being look at the text caught caught in any transgression now this word this word caught is really interesting word Uh, the greek term that paul uses there it has the idea of being being taken by surprise of being being overtaken by something the idea that something is chasing you from behind and eventually it catches you and as i as i studied the idea in that word, it reminded me of God's warning to Cain. Remember God's warning to Cain back there in Genesis chapter 4? Right before he, he didn't need God's warning, but right before he killed his brother, God gave him this warning. This is Genesis 4, 6 and 7. God said to him, why are you angry? What a great question. <laughs> why are you angry? Why has your, your face, your countenance fallen, Cain? If you do well, if you do what you're supposed to, won't you be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen to this. Listen to what he says. Listen to the warning he gives. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. The Lord, speaking of Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, Cain, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at the door. And that is the reality of sin. Sin is crouching at the door. Sin is a trap. Sin is a baited hook that promises pleasure but only brings pain, only brings pain. Someone has well said, sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go, keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go, keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and cost you more than you ever thought, wanted to pay sin is a snare it is laying wait it is crouching at the door for each and every one of us and here's the thing beloved we can all find ourselves from time to time caught up in that snare That can be true of you it's true of me it's true of all of us in this community together so here's the question for us as a community what do we do when that happens because it will happen amen will happen. What do we do when that happens? What do we do as a community, as a spiritual community? How do we function when that happens? Do we just ignore one another's struggles and pretend they're not going on? That's a temptation, right? We'll just look the other way. Is that what we do? Or, or, or do we swing the pendulum in the other direction? Somebody struggles with sin, let's kick him to the curb. Is that what we do? What do we do? Well, here in verse 1. Paul lays out a great approach. And it's a great approach because it's God's approach. It's a biblical approach. And look at this approach. It starts here with enlisting the right people. Look again at the text. What does Paul say? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are, what does it say? You who are spiritual should restore him. So Paul says, go get the spiritual people what does that mean? What in the world could Paul possibly mean by those who are spiritual? Well, if you've been with us, what has he just been talking about in chapter 5? Right? Look back there. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, etc. Verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I wonder what in the world Paul means by you who are spiritual. (laughs) Yeah, those who are spiritual are those who are walking by the Spirit. Now, here's the thing. This is so important. That doesn't mean they're perfect people. Amen? That doesn't mean they're perfect people. What it means, you need to mark this, it means that they are dependent people. Dependent people. They know their own weakness. They aren't full of arrogance. They have been born of the Spirit and now they are living in dependence upon the Spirit. And you see it. You see it in their life. Their life shows moments of love and joy, of peace and patience. You see the fruit of the Spirit manifest in their life. And beloved, here's the thing. Every single Christian should aim to be at being that type of person. Amen? We should all be pursuing... Walking by the Spirit, amen? This is, not, this is not an option that Paul's given. This is a command, right? So we should all aim at being that type of person. So therefore, that means that every single one of us, as we walk by the Spirit, should be ready then to do this work of restoration. Every single one of us. Ready to do this work of restoration. Paul here isn't saying, send in the professionals. Instead, he's saying, Send in those who are walking in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. You see, as we all pursue living a spiritual life, we have a calling, brothers and sisters. We have a responsibility to help one another live that same spiritual life. That brings me to the second thing that Paul lays out in his approach here. First, when someone in the community is ensnared by sin, we need to send the right kind of people But second, we need to make sure those people are aiming at the right target. Aiming at the right target. And what is the right target? Well, again, look at the text. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should what? What does it say? Yeah, should restore him. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say should judge him, right? It doesn't say should condemn him. It doesn't say should gossip about him. Instead, it says what? Should restore to restore him. Now what's, what's really interesting about the word that Paul chose to use here, the word that's translated as restore, is that originally it was a healing term in the Greek language. It's actually usually originally a medical term. It, it was used to describe setting a, a broken bone or a dislocated joint. It described putting something back the way it should be. But here's the thing. Anyone who has ever broken a bone... Or dislocated a joint and having an, have it reset. They can tell you, that that's, is that a comfortable process? Is that an enjoyable process? Having that bone reset? Having that dislocated joint? No, it's a painful process. And I bring that because it can be the same thing. When we are restoring a brother or sister ensnared in sin. It's like like doing medical triage out on a battlefield. Sometimes you witness things that are shocking. You see the, the, the real, up-close, destructive reality of sin in a person's life. And it can be painful. It can be painful for the person being restored. And it can also be painful for the person helping to restore. But let me just raise the obvious question. What are the other options? Brothers and sisters, what are the other options? Just leave that brother and sister to suffer alone out on the battlefield. Just leave them wounded at the mercy of Satan, the flesh, and the world. Is that an option? Shoot our own wounded? Some Christians do that. But what kind of community is that? Amen? What kind of community? Just leave them to die on the battlefield. Just shoot our own wounded. Is that what we should do? Obviously not. So those who are spiritual go. Because the spirit produces love in us. We go from that love. We go to the one who is struggling. And we go for this work of restoration. We want to see them back. We want to see them back walking with Christ, back living by the Spirit, back to where they should be. And as we go, we need to make sure that we go in the right manner. Right people, right goal, right manner. Paul says that this work of restoration, look at the text, is to be done in a spirit of gentleness. And we, he, he writes that he's talking about spirit with a lowercase s. He's describing a, a manner, an attitude and that manner is to be one of of gentleness. But here's the thing. At first glance, when you really think about that restore them in a the spirit of gentleness, that's kind of a surprising statement to find in This letter coming from this particular author. And I say that because this is a statement coming from a guy who in this very letter called the Galatians fools said that he wished false teachers would castrate themselves and that anyone preaching the gospel other than the true gospel should go straight to hell. Paul, that doesn't sound like the most gentle of approaches. So what's Paul driving at here? Is he contradicting himself? Is he calling himself a hypocrite? No, not at all. What we need to understand is that this word gentleness, it's not describing some Casper milk toast. It's not describing someone who never speaks with force or passion. It's it's not saying that we shouldn't be blunt or firm when confronting sin. Instead, this is a word that could also be translated as meekness, which is power under control or also humility. This word actually describes an attitude of not being overly impressed with with a sense of one's own self-worth. Not thinking too much of yourself. In other words, what Paul's saying is when you go to restore another brother, don't go in like an arrogant bull in a china shop. You know that picture, right? Just coming in and making a mess of things from your arrogance. Instead, you come as a fellow sinner who knows the struggle. Humility gentleness. You come as a fellow sinner who knows the struggle. You come as one who hates what sin does because you have scars of your own. You come as a person dependent upon the Spirit, imploring your brother, imploring your sister to get back to that place of living in dependence upon the Spirit. You come in humility. You come in gentleness, with passion, with sorrow, Longing to see this brother, this sister, this family member, this person in your community, longing to see them back to where they should be. Longing to see them restored. That's the right manner. That's the right manner. But as you do that work, as you do that work, be careful. Sin is crouching at the door. Sin is crouching at the door. Pride is crouching at the door, and it's laying in wait. To ensnare those who come to rescue. Paul, look at the text here. He gives another important warning. It's there at the end of the verse. Keep watch on yourself. Lest you too be what? Tempted. And the temptation I think that Paul's describing here. Is not not necessarily falling into the same temptation. As that person you're seeking to restore. Somebody's struggling with alcohol. Well, you go to help them out. And maybe you're going to become an alcoholic. That's not the idea. It's not a warning that you might fall into the same temptation. I think what he's warning against here is again, against spiritual pride. Against spiritual arrogance. Against that spiritual conceit that can creep in as we start to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Oh, I need to go and talk with this brother because I'm, I'm spiritual. <laughs> that arrogance that creeps in. And Paul's saying, Watch yourself. Watch yourself. Go in love. Go in humility. Watch yourself. And beloved, this is how a Christian community needs to pursue holiness together. We need to graciously, graciously, not, not judging, not condemning, we need to graciously correct one another. Independence upon the spirit with the goal of restoration, manifesting true humility. Fellow sinners go unto one another. Manifesting true humility in the process. Now, Lord willing, next week we're going to explore all of this further, this idea of living in a spiritual community. But as I close, let me just make this clear. This is, this is what the Christian look, life looks like because this is what a spiritual life looks like. This is what the Christian life is to look like because this is what a spiritual life looks like. It doesn't look like a bunch of isolated individuals caught up in navel-gazing and just living them in Jesus. It doesn't look like the approach of Simeon the Stylites. I'll put it to you this way. You can't be a truly spiritual person all by yourself. You can't be a truly spiritual person all by yourself. That's not the way God designed things. That's not the calling that he has upon his people. Instead, just like Jesus, just like the New Testament church, true spirituality is seen through our relationships with one another. So let me ask the obvious question. What do your relationships with other Christians look like? What do your relationships, We'll go from community to individual. (laughs) What do your relationships with other Christians look like? First, let's ask the obvious question. Do you have real relationships with your fellow Christians? Do you have a relationships? Do you spend time getting to know them and letting them get to know you? And if you do, which you should, when you find yourself experiencing spiritual success or you witness spiritual success in their life, how do you respond? Do you rejoice together in the Spirit's gracious work? Man, I'm so excited to see God's grace evident in your life. Do you rejoice in the Spirit's working or do you become conceited? Do you envy? Do you get competitive? And what about when they struggle? What about when they fall into sin? Just leave your fellow Christian to suffer on the battlefield? Or do you go to them, leaning into the spirit, resting in his, his wisdom, his grace, and working diligently to restore them? How are you approaching being part of a Christian community? And what does your approach reveal about your spirituality? I'm going to end this morning with this question. And I really want you to think about this. If everyone took your approach, your personal approach, think about your life. If everyone took your approach, where would the community be? If everyone approached things the way you do, where would the community be? What kind of church would that make? If everyone approached their Christian relationships just like you do. And I raise that question because I think about good old Simeon the Stylite. What if everyone had taken his approach? All out there in their various wilderness, separated from the world, separated from one another up on their pillars? What if everybody had taken that approach? Would that be truly spiritual? Was that what Jesus was aiming at when he said, Go and make disciples? How long would the church survive if everyone had taken Simeon's approach? Would it died out in his generation? But what about if we took your approach? Again, not thinking about other people, just an individual here. What about if we took your approach? How long would the church survive? Brothers and sisters, God has called us to live a spiritual life. But that is not, that is not a life in isolation. That's a life in community. And a truly spiritual life will lead to a spiritual community. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we talk about these things, um, it is one thing to sit here on a Sunday morning and preach these things and amen these things. Um, But I think all of us here in this room know that the real challenge is when the rubber meets the road and we really are living life together and struggles with sin arise or temptations towards, envy arise a sense of competitiveness arises and what do we do in those moments thank you for laying out in your word this calling upon us Paul's warning here for us that as we pursue living life by the spirit we gotta be careful that we don't become conceited we don't become competitive, we don't become envious, we praise you for giving us that warning and we also praise you for the beautiful way he's laid out, how we are to go forward in a spiritual community, how we're to pursue holiness together, how we're to be, be generous towards one another, sharing with one another, and how we are to really look at ourselves and see what we as individuals are contributing to the community. But I pray, I pray especially for all of us with this, this truth about pursuing holiness together, So often we, we feel like we're stepping on people's toes, like we're muddling in one another's lives. We just keep our mouth shut and there's not a, a desire to lovingly encourage or correct or admonish or restore one another. In one sense, we think we should pray for more boldness. But Father, I think sometimes we just need to pray for that fruit of the spirit of love. That we would truly love our brothers and sisters and want the very best for them. And so, when we see the, the world tripping them up, when we see them, them ensnared in the ways of the flesh, we see the enemy deceiving them, that from love we would go to them. We would help to restore them. And we would do that because that's what we desire in our own life. None of us want to be left alone out on the battlefield. We don't want a church that's shooting its own wounded. We want to be lovingly restored, so so help us to be a people who lovingly restore. Help us to be a gracious, gentle community. Fellow sinners, saved by the grace of Christ, on this pilgrimage together, walking together, serving together, loving one another, proclaiming the gospel together. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the blessing of the fellowship that we enjoy here. Help us to excel still more. Help us to be more faithful as we lean into the Spirit, as he empowers us to live the life you've called us to live. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.